We continue our study in Second Peter, Peter's second epistle. The first one we saw, the first epistle, as we went through it, dealt with a problem from outside the church, that is persecution. The second letter deals with a problem inside the church, that is false teachers. In the first chapter of this epistle, Peter deals with what it means to be a Christian. And now in chapter two, he deals with the reality of false teachers. The last time I spoke, I was not here last Sunday. We looked at the first four verses of chapter two and we saw the following. First of all, that there is the ever present danger of false teachers. That even in the Old Testament, well, particularly in the Old Testament, we see this pattern of there being false teachers among the people. If you look at verse number one. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Um, This should not surprise us because in the first epistle, we saw that the pattern of the righteous suffering is found in Israel. It's seen in Jesus. And now we see it in the church. Likewise, the false teaching we see in the church, we see also in the Old Testament. There's a real continuity. Israel is warned about these people. And in these verses, Peter warns us. He gives us five signs, if you wish, of false teaching and false teachers. The first sign is what we would call unorthodox or non-orthodox teaching. Now, this may seem obvious. You know, if if somebody is teaching something false, then, then you know that they are. But oftentimes it's more difficult to spot than we might imagine. The people that Peter writes about and the false teachers we find in the church today do not wear a sign around their neck saying, I'm a false teacher. Please do not listen to me. In fact, they, sign, they sound highly plausible. And as Peter puts it, they will secretly introduce, they will smuggle in their new ideas. These are people who have denied the Lord, we are told. What this means, we are not given specific, but as I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, I think that this has to do with the second coming. They deny that Jesus is coming back. Therefore, they deny the this, this judgment, the final judgment. So they're not really afraid of anything. They figure that they can do whatever that they want, which is the second sign we see of false teachers, that they are shameful in their ways, a free morality. N.T. Wright, in his new translation of the New Testament, says, and many will follow after their disgusting practices. Um, As I said, I think we can make a case that it is inevitable that those who do not believe in the second coming will live a life without fear and will do whatever it is that they want. For them, ethics becomes a matter of personal choice and taste. Self-expression, self-fulfillment is what they're after rather than purity and obedience. The third sign is that they have great popularity. Many will follow their shameful ways. If, in fact, there is no master to please, there will be only ourselves to please. And who doesn't like that? And if someone speaks a message that flatters people rather than calling them to faith and repentance, if one encourages people to enjoy their darkest and most secret desires rather than hard discipleship and learning, we should not be surprised that many will run after such a person. I mentioned this the other Sunday that just because a congregation is large, a church is large, does not mean that their pastor is a false teacher. Just as the fact that a congregation is small does not mean that the pastor is orthodox. What Peter is doing is telling his readers they should not be surprised when many follow false teachers. It does seem counterintuitive that if I'm a Christian, a child of God, I should be able to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. 
more on this in a minute. The fourth warning sign is its effect on the gospel reputation and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Non-Christians are not fools. They can see through. They can see through the deception and they are repelled. They are disgusted by the greedy self-indulgence of those that pass themselves off as preachers or pastors. Sadly, they use this as an excuse to reject any form of the Christian message. They bring the way of truth into disrepute. And then the fifth warning sign is secret motives. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with, te- with stories they have made up. If they are teaching shameful ways, should we be surprised that they have less than stellar motives? Their only motive is not money, as we see in other epistles, but here Peter focuses on that. Greed and exploit are the two words he uses. Greed has overtones of extortion. Exploit is a normal commercial term. So I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, the New Testament is unashamed to say that Christian leaders face temptations about money. That is why, in part, Christian leaders are to be chosen for their financial honesty. So what we see here, the five warning signs, Peter is concerned that his readers know about false teachers, that they do not hold to the Orthodox faith, they are marked by sexual immorality, they attract a lot of followers, they bring disgrace on the gospel, and they are marked by greed. But we didn't end there because verse number four tells us, basically, that God is not caught by surprise. I asked you to do this a couple Sundays ago. I will do it now and at the end of the sermon. Imagine that you are in the first century and a teacher has come to your church teaching things that just don't sound right. And after a while, you become convinced that this person is a false teacher, particularly because he preaches that there is no second coming, that Jesus is not returning, that there is no judgment. Jesus will not judge his people. And you stand there, you sit there, you wait for God to strike them dead with a bolt of lightning, but nothing happens to them. And in fact, you notice that a large number of the people you call brothers and sisters no longer worship with you, but they go with this man who is a false teacher. After a while, you might begin to wonder, am I actually right or is this person right? Look at the success that he is having. Perhaps I've been mistaken all along. Why hasn't God done something about this person? Paul or Peter wants his readers to know God knows what is going on. As he writes, their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Specifically, God has decided on the verdict, condemnation. He has decided on the sentence, that is destruction. Peter fleshes out, uh, fleshes this out in the verses that follow. But just one more thing before we move on. Why does God allow false teachers to come in among his people? I suggested several Sundays ago that in part, God wants us to learn discernment. He wants us to develop the ability to discern what is true from what is false. Such an ability is not automatic. It's not because we become Christians that suddenly we know everything and we can discern. It requires ongoing experience and practice as the people of God. 
as the people of God, not primarily as individuals. Uh, I think this is something that greatly concerns me, that people are very concerned that they themselves, as individuals, come to be able to discern truth from falseness, you know, truth from heresy. I'm not opposed to that, but I think Peter's point is as a congregation, as, a, as God's people together, we are to do this and not rely on ourselves. Now, if Peter is right, if God's judgment is real, but it has not happened yet, it's future, how are we supposed to live in the meantime? We have these false teachers running around, saying all the wrong things, dragging people after them. Here we are standing for the truth. We know that one day God will judge them. Peter has said so. What am I supposed to do in the meantime? Well, in the verses that follow, Peter gives us three examples to prove that God has judged in the past and that he will do so again in the future. Peter tells us indirectly how he expects us to live now in the present. Look, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse number four, verses four to nine. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. In Greek, this is all one sentence, and it actually goes on to verse number 10. We've stopped here at verse number 9. There's an if at the beginning of verse number 4. It is answered by then in verse number 9. But the NIV, I think, in order to help the reader stay on track, has supplied four other ifs. So if in verse number 4, verse number 5, verse 6, verse 7, and then repeat it again at verse number 9. Remember, Peter is making the case that if God judged in the past, then he will do it again. Peter doesn't need me to say this, but in my opinion, he has made a brilliant argument. I am I'm just stunned by the way in which he has organized this. He shapes the three examples quite carefully. First of all, chronologically, the judgment of the angels and then the judgment of the flood and then finally the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he does so in terms of locality. He starts cosmically with the angels and then he shrinks it down to worldwide flood and then he shrinks it down further to cities, the cities on the plains there. And thirdly, as he is giving us these examples, he slowly but surely builds up a vocabulary of judgment that is coming. So he says that the angels sinned or are being held for judgment. Then he moves on to Noah's world that was ungodly, but Noah was righteous and protected. And then in Sodom and Gomorrah, they're not only ungodly, but lawless. And this word is used twice. And Lot is seen as righteous, mentioned three times, and he is rescued. And all of this leads to verse number nine. 
Let's look at these three biblical examples. Verse number four. The first example provides us an intriguing but partial glimpse into a world beyond our experience. The world of beings who serve God face to face, angels, and yet they rebelled against him. I would argue that the specifics of this we are not told. Uh, There are many who say this is Genesis chapter 6, and I, I don't accept that. I think Peter is talking about something that is beyond our experience, beyond our knowledge. He's talking about beings that are beyond us. They are supernatural. I think he doesn't give us the details because that would distract us from the point he's trying to make. The point he's trying to make is no one is exempt from judgment, not even the angels. You might think, look at me, and we think that the false teachers thought that they would not be judged. And Peter says, wait a minute, the angels, they are higher than you. They were judged. Why do you think you will not be judged? As Peter puts it, God did not spare angels. Again, from what we can piece together, the false teachers thought that they were immune to this and therefore there was no fear. And then we see about their judgment that even though it was delayed, it was quite real. The angels sinned in the past. They are being held in the present for judgment that is in the future. It's a very dynamic situation. That is to say, the angels still await their final inevitable judgment. One writer puts it this way. Built into the way God runs the universe is the principle that punishment does not immediately follow rebellion. There will be no exceptions to the judgment pronounced on angels. But in the next two examples, there are, in fact, exceptions. These are set not in the heavenlies, if you wish, the angels rebelling against God. These are set in human history. And here in human history, we find the possibility of salvation, salvation for those who have rebelled against God. As I said, Peter is less than clear about what happened to the angels in the meantime. He says, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. The NIV has a footnote for hell, putting Tartarus in its place. Tartarus is a standard term in non-biblical Greek mythology. It's a place where the gods who rebelled were sent as a punishment. And why Peter chose to use this term, I honestly do not know. It's the only place we find it in the New Testament. The fact that they are put in gloomy dungeons or in chains of darkness doesn't really help us. But it matters little because Peter's point is clear. The angels that he has in mind are out of harm's way. They are under God's lock and key. And if God did not spare the angels, he will not spare the false teachers. The second example is the flooded world in verse number five. As God did not spare the angels, so he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. The story has its beginnings in Genesis chapter 6, in which we read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. These are amazing words. 
But it continues in verse number seven. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But there is a difference between this story of the flood and what we saw in the story of the angels. It is found in the next verse in Genesis 6 verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In contrast to the ungodly, Noah stood firm and he was a righteous man. We are told that the whole earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And yet, on the other hand, we are told that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. It is important for us to know and to remember that Noah was not a passive believer. He built the ark. In Hebrews 11, in which it tells us of the people of faith in the Old Testament, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we know that he built the ark. I think this is what most people remember about, our, about Noah. But here we are told something we're not told anywhere else in scripture. He was a preacher of righteousness. We know he built the ark. A project that as best we can tell took about a hundred years took him a hundred years to build the ark. And yet he was a preacher of righteousness. What does Peter mean? Well, I think we have two choices. First, to understand that in addition to building the ark, Noah would take time off and he would preach to the people saying, God has said he is displeased with you and he's going to judge the earth. Or on the other hand, we can understand his life of faithfulness as a sermon in itself. That by doing what he did, he was a preacher of righteousness. In mentioning Noah, Peter makes at least two points. That although God's judgment on the ungodly was inevitable, it was not inescapable. The people did not have to die. God protected Noah and seven others. He could have protected far more than that. It was escapable. It was not inescapable. Noah's sermon, whether in word or in deed, was not one of gloom and pessimism. It was one of hope. There was a way of escape. There was the ark. It's far, far different than what we see with the angels. The second thing I think Peter wants us to see is that Noah spent around a hundred years building the ark, a righteous man among ungodly people. In the same way, Peter's readers are living among the ungodly. They may have found it hard to continue, to keep going, to persevere. They may be tempted, in fact, to give up. But Peter says that they and we are to actively believe, as did Noah and his family. This is not easy, as we see in the third example. Here, we find the filthy cities. Uh, I'm using somebody else's outline and always worried about alliteration, but the word filthy is, in fact, found in our text, so I'm okay. Most people are familiar with the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Most associate their sin with some form of sexual sin, usually homosexuality. I'm reminded of uh, some lines from Bob Dylan's song, Jokerman. Jokerman. You're going to Sodom and Gomorrah, but what do you care? Ain't nobody there would want to marry your sister. While I'm not discounting that, I would remind you of what the prophets have to say about Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 16, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, I find that fascinating, it focuses on the women. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. I find it fascinating that Peter does not go into detail. Rather, he uses the word ungodly, as he did about Noah's generation, made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. But then he adds filthy and lawless, which is used twice, once in verse 7, one in verse 8. This is the only place that he uses the word lawless. But filthy we have seen before. In 1 Peter 4, 3, where you have spent enough time in your past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, that is filthiness, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. But in fact, we don't have to go back to First Peter. We can stay right here in this chapter. In verse number two, many will follow their shameful or their filthy ways. And we will see it again in verse number 18. Now Peter seeks to drive home his point. Judgment came on these cities. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. But this is not the whole story, as is in the case with the flood. There was grace and mercy. And the person in mind here is Lot. Lot is referred to here in this passage as righteous, not once or twice, but three times, and this is surprising to say the least. If you look at verses 7 and 8, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If you're familiar at all with the book of Genesis, righteous is not the first word that comes to mind when you think of Lot. We think of him as greedy and weak, attracted to the sinful, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was given a choice. Abraham, his uncle, gave him a choice. And he chose to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Peter tells us that he was distressed by what he saw going on around him. How can this be? You may remember the story found in Genesis 18, this is the chapter before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Lord tells Abraham of what he is going to do to these cities. And Abraham seeks to change his mind. And how does he do that? By asking that if there are 50 righteous people in the city, if the Lord would spare the cities for the sake of those 50 righteous people. I think it makes sense to assume that Abraham includes among that number his nephew Lot. The two angels are sent to rescue Lot. When they come into the city, Lot insists on taking them to his house to show them hospitality 
contrary to the norm of that city. The men of Sodom go to Lot's house seeking to take these two angels and use them for their own purposes. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. And how did they respond? Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. And you think you know better than us. I think Peter makes at least two points in this third example. Not only has judgment been promised, but its pattern has been revealed. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And the second point, I think we should take to heart, that living the kind of life God approves of in a world of, that is under judgment will be tough. Like Lot, we may be tormented and distressed by what we see and hear. We should grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done. I think of the three examples, this is the one to which we can best relate. We know nothing of the angels and the rebellion. And we may not experience the loneliness of Noah building an ark for a hundred years. But we can relate to Lot. We who live in a world that seeks to pressure us to conform, to compromise. A world, sadly enough, that is under judgment. But this isn't the end of the passage. As I said earlier, this is one long sentence. We have a series of ifs, as the NIV puts it, but they all lead to the then in verse number nine. Look, if you would, at verse number nine. If this is so then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. From this, I think we can learn two truths. First of all, God is in control of the godly. One might take from this passage that what Peter is saying is that deliverance will happen for us at the end of time. And that is true. But the emphasis in these three examples has been more on what happened before judgment. Even in the case of the angels who are presently waiting for the final judgment, we find in Noah and Lot two individuals who stood out against the prevailing immorality of their world. And we are to do that even when that immorality has infected the church. It may be that the answer in our lives is the final judgment, that we're going to have to wait for things to be made right at the end of time. But in the meantime, we may have to endure trials. These are the tough times that all Christians have gone through, where the only way of safety is clinging to God and his faithfulness. There are times when one is tempted to think, that because the unrighteous run the world, sometimes they run the church as well. It's tempting to think that God has ceased to rule, but God still rules. We may find it painful and difficult to be faithful, to be righteous when we are surrounded by ungodliness, unrighteousness, and filth. In the hymn that we sang earlier, This is my Father's World, 
But though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is in control of the righteous. The second point is that God is in control of the unrighteous. We are told that they are being held for judgment. But did you forget what we saw in verse number three? Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And then verse number nine, to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. It may seem to us that the unrighteous are living the good life, a relatively hassle-free life, free of difficulties, while those who are seeking to live as God intends may be suffering any and all kinds of problems. Peter wants us to know that God is in control of the righteous and all that happens and will happen to us. He is in control of the unrighteous and all that happens and will happen to them. As I mentioned earlier, imagine that you're living in the first century and a teacher comes to your church teaching things that you know are wrong. Particularly, he teaches that there is no second coming. And nothing happens to this man. And people follow after him and nothing happens to them. But wait, do we need to be in the first century? What about in the 21st century? And you turn on the TV. And you see various ministries that are teaching things that, quite frankly, are wrong. But they seem to be very successful. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, did I choose correctly here? Am I on the right path? These people seem to be doing very well. And if they were false, wouldn't God do something to them? God has given us a wonderful opportunity to stand faithfully in the midst of this and to learn discernment as a congregation. As we discuss among each other, as we talk about these things, that we can say, that is wrong, that is false. And we can encourage each other. As small as a church as we are, we have more people than Noah did. There's Noah and seven people. There were eight of them. By God's grace, there are more than eight of us today. Um, And the project God has given us, I don't think we're going to be working on it a hundred years. I don't think we're going to be around that long. We can encourage each other. We are to encourage each other. And to know that God is in control of our lives. He is in control of everyone's life. The righteous and the unrighteous. And he calls us, as Peter is doing in his letter, to stand. To be faithful. It's been many years now since I moved to Los Angeles. But I remember when I first did, um, there were a number of pastors who were a bit troubled that I'd come to Los Angeles. How, how could I live in such a wicked place? Um, wouldn't I be better off in the suburbs uh, rather than the city? God has put us where we are. And where we are, we are to stand faithfully knowing that judgment will come. But judgment is escapable. Those around us 
do not have to come under the judgment of God. And as we live our lives faithfully, perhaps by the grace of God, they will come to know the truth of God's salvation as found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, there are times when we are tempted to think that if you really loved us, you would make our lives a bit easier. You would expose false teachers for who they are and what they are. You would not allow them to exist. You would not allow them to come among your people. But we trust that you know what is best. That we as your people, as a congregation here, are to learn discernment. We are to teach one another. We are to stand together. We live in a culture that is under judgment. Though judgment is inevitable, it is not inescapable. And as we live by your grace, holy lives, may we like Noah be preachers of righteousness, perhaps not in word, but in deed, and do what is right in the midst of great wrongness, great unrighteousness. May we be lights in a world of darkness. I thank you for this time that we could gather together the first day of a new week, your day. We could come together as your people to worship you. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray your blessing on our time together afterwards and the food that we will have. We thank you for the generosity of those who have provided it. We pray this in Jesus' name.